Hi, I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 27th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers in Technology. I'm flying solo today because Jim Calloway, who is also known as the Cowboy, is under the weather, and we decided that our audience didn't want to hear Jim's nonstop coughing. I'm happy to be joined today by John Simic, one of the country's foremost experts on computer forensics, and by way of full disclosure, John is also my husband. It's nice to have such a stellar pinch hitter close at hand. Welcome, John. Thanks, and sorry we're missing Jim today. Since not everyone knows you, John, I'm going to do just a bit of an introduction. John has been involved in computer forensics for the last 12 years. He holds a number of forensic certifications, including the ENCE, and he's also a certified handheld examiner. He has a raft of certifications in technology. John is the vice president of Sensei Enterprises, located in Fairfax, Virginia. And along with me, John has written hundreds of articles on electronic evidence and given hundreds of CLEs. We are also co-authors of one of the ABA's best-selling books on electronic evidence, the Electronic Evidence Handbook, Forms, Checklists, and Guidelines. His resume is very lengthy, so I'm going to stop right there so that we can get on with today's topic, which is Computer Forensics Frequently Asked Questions. As we both know, John, most lawyers don't know a lot about computer forensics. So let's deal with some of the questions you and I field all the time. One of the most common from the world of family law, which comprises about 25% of our caseload here at Sensei, is can you recover my spouse's emails and instant messages from a computer? How would you answer, John? Well, the, the short answer is yes, we can, technically. Uh, the software that we use, the methods that we use, we don't even see any of the passwords that are that are on the computers. But I want to mention a little bit about the law and that without a court order or the permission of the user, we are legally unable to provide any information that is protected by a password. In most email and instant message accounts, they require a username and a password for access. It really doesn't matter if the computer is a family computer. Ownership isn't the point. The law is protecting individuals' privacy. In general, in order to get a court order, you're going to need to file for suit for divorce. But as folks know, attorneys really need to, to check with and follow their own state rules because they vary slightly. Another question we're frequently asked is, can you determine whether spyware is installed on a computer? Certainly the, the simplistic spyware, the, those that are not very very uh, stellar in, in their, their operation, are very, very easy to detect. And, and any general antivirus scan or those kind of internet security packages are going to be able to find those, those programs. We've also developed techniques to detect some of the advanced spyware programs. And I'm not going not gonna to mention those that are really, really good, because then folks are all going to run out there and purchase those. But we have developed techniques, and we've documented how these programs operate, what their characteristics are, et cetera. And we can determine when and by what methods the spyware was installed, how it may have been configured, what kind of information is going to be captured, and transferred off to third party. Typically, we'll also be able to determine the email address where the, the reports are being sent. And that's kind of a common method of delivery as to where these, these guys go. But if someone other than an employer has placed spyware in your machine, they've probably violated both the state and federal wiretap acts. So again, talk to the attorneys to get further information and make sure that if you're a victim of, of a spyware installation or you think you are, then have your computer forensic technologist document that and all the information that relates to that, it certainly can be very damning, especially with the uh, in cases that we've had with the email address being delivered. And if you could tie an individual to that email address, then that certainly shows who may have installed that spyware to begin with. These days, mobile phones are ubiquitous. 
So can you tell us if a forensic technologist can recover deleted messages from a mobile phone? I wish there were an easy answer for that one. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of different models, manufacturers, etc. Of, of mobile phones. But the ability to capture text messages as well as recovery of anything that's deleted off of them uh, really is dependent on the service provider and the phone itself. So once we know who the provider is and what the model of the phone is, it gives us a good idea as to what we may be expected to retrieve from that. Uh, and it, it also depends, uh, again, on, the, on the, the model. Some phones have not just the memory within the phone itself, but they also have a SIM card. So that's another memory card that's attached to the phone. And they also may have an external card, too, or uh, another card, uh, SD card type or micro SD. So there's potentially a lot of different places where these things are going to reside. If you're a Verizon account holder, then there's just the memory within the phone and then any, any SD card. So the, the key here is that once folks know what the, the make and manufacturer of the phone is that they're trying to get the information from, if they give us that information, then we can check our databases, look at what kind of information might be retrievable from that. We've, we've recovered deleted text messages as old as two years from some phones, but that's kind of on the rare side it's more likely we can retrieve messages in a year or less. And I would say in the vast majority of the time, it's in the couple month period, the latest couple of months, that we can get information from the phone. Because just like a computer, once the data is overwritten, it's not retrievable. So it, it really, again, it's hard to predict how long that information is going to reside in there, depending on how intensively someone uses text messaging, how much memory is available there. The one thing I will say, though, is that iPhones seem to keep a lot more information, a lot longer than any other device we've seen, certainly of late. Yeah, we, we, we know that we're well known for having something to say about iPhones. Uh, from a computer forensic standpoint, they're incredibly evidence-rich and take a photo of everything you do. So uh, be careful if an iPhone is your device of choice. Uh, to move to another topic, sadly, about 25% of our cases involve the theft of proprietary data. I actually have seen a study recently saying that more than half of people who leave a corporation say they took proprietary data with them. It's a pretty uh, corrupt and unethical world out there. So it's no surprise that a frequent question people ask is, can an expert determine whether any files were transferred from a computer to another device? It isn't always as simple as, as it seems, unfortunately, especially if logging is not enabled. And most businesses don't log or at least have a detailed log of it. They pretty much rely on what logging is in effect for the operating system. But as a general rule, we can determine a lot of information about that computer activity, such things as what external devices, the manufacturer, serial number, etc., were connected to the computer, the first and last time those devices were connected. If any files, we can even tell whether or not any files were burned to a CD or DVD and possibly the names of the files themselves, again, depending on the software that was used to, to burn those, whatever the, the files, any files that may have been accessed from any removable media. There's remnants that re reside within the, the operating system that, that point to the location of the file and where they were, they were accessed so we may be able to re retrieve some of that information and any files that were sent or received as email attachments. Certainly we can identify those. So we, we gather all of this information, all these various bits and pieces, put a timeline together and see if we can't come up with some sort of uh, a corroborative uh, determination of in information that may have been accessed and or copied to any sort of external device and, and even possibly sent uh, you know, via email attachment. 
most of the time in, in business cases, we see two things that, that occur here when, when folks are, are trying to get information. They either send email or send the data as email attachments to their personal web-based account, like a Gmail, Yahoo, etc., or they bring in a flash drive or, or a very small external USB drive, connect that up, and then just copy data onto that. So those are the two primary areas we, we see. But it's, it's really a complicated area here. So you need to make sure that your expert is given all the facts possible so that they really can do a, a credible job for you in trying to determine whether or not uh, data may have been uh, may have gone missing, if you will. <laughs> and, and I will say that courts and juries tend to say that if if there was a device connected and some of this data leaked out, the fact that you can't prove exactly what went to that flash drive uh, seems not to matter a whole lot. Uh, they do draw the logical implications from the fact that just before you left, a drive was inserted and a lot of stuff got out. So uh, that's that's always kind of interesting to see how it plays when you it's it's more circumstantial than absolute proof. Moving along, there there are many reasons why folks might want to have a specific web page captured for legal use. Sometimes what's been posted is defamatory. Sometimes it shows copyright or other intellectual property infringement. Or maybe it shows that a spouse has been having an affair. We've certainly seen many a Facebook page and blog post at issue in the courts. So people often ask, is it possible to capture information on a particular web page for use in court later? Sure it is. We, we typically capture the, the structure and the content, uh, anything that's related to that page. And we have a lot of different ways that we do that. We have a lot of different software packages that we use depending on how that web page is, is coded. It allows us to maintain a snapshot of that, that page. And the, the end game here is that we want to be able to reconstruct the page exactly as it exists at a particular date and time. So we can effectively rebuild that and reassemble it and show that as, as evidence. It's really something that should be done by an independent third party, uh, not someone who has a vested interest, you know, as an example, not the client themselves, or by the attorney as well who really can't testify in the, in the client's behalf. And, and we've had instances of that where attorneys have gone and, and captured the web page using Acrobat or whatever tool they're using and then have come to us to, to say, well, can you testify that this site this is the way it looked at such and such a date. Well, we didn't do that, so if it doesn't still look that way, we really can't say that. <laughs> Internet history is an important part of many cases. Can experts determine, John, what websites someone has visited? Internet history is a wonderful thing. There's, there's, a, there's a, a ton of information that's available via Internet history. A lot of folks don't even realize that uh, even generic file access is even contained in, in some of the Internet history. And, and people believe as well that if they clear their, their internet uh, history, their internet cache, that that data is gone. Um, but it's not gone it's until it's overwritten. So we have tools that can go in there and actually retrieve all of that information, whether it's been deleted or not, uh, and, and scour the entire hard drive and, and get internet history all the way down to even a single record. We get a, a significant amount of internet history and, and active and deleted information we can determine a lot of things from, from that information, such as what search terms the user might have used. And it particularly may be particularly important, you know, if it's a, if it's a murder case or whatever, whatever terms that they're using. Uh, in child pornography cases, we, we see this as well as to what terms they may have been using to, to search for. It may have been good or, or bad. But also, the, if there's multiple user accounts on the computer, we can determine which user ID was logged in at the time that particular internet activity occurred. 
we certainly can tell whatever sites were visited. Uh, we get an idea based upon the various pages that were visited within the site too as to how long they may have been on a particular site. And one of the things that, that folks don't, don't realize to a, to a degree is that we can also tell whether or not any of this activity was caused by pop-ups and you know, redirection of, of activity within the, uh, the internet browser or whether it was user-initiated. And we typically we see that kind of defense a lot in, in the criminal defense cases, you know, where, where the evil internet has has caused us to go to these uh, these particular cases. Or what was that one case down in Florida where the cat was walking across the keyboard and yeah, the cat did it. <laughs> yeah. The cat downloaded the child porn. Yeah, uh huh. Sure, go ahead. And what's 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 your next plausible defense, sir? Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy, isn't it? Um, with the advent of spoofed emails. Uh, sometimes you don't know who's really sending an email because it only takes a matter of moments to spoof an email. Kids can do it. And, and we've seen spoofed email in all kinds of cases. They're especially common in divorce cases where a husband will pretend to be the wife and send himself terrible emails and then say, look, uh, she's not a fit mother. She shouldn't have custody. Uh, and, and it can work if, if the judge is not educated to, to understand how easy spoofing is, which makes the question, can experts trace the origin of an email message? Certainly, if we have the electronic version, uh, there's a lot of information that's held within the, within the headers. If you get a printout of a particular email message, then that printout has to contain the full header information. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to determine any of the servers that the mail message may have gone through. If you have that, if you have the full headers or if you have the electronic version, you can take a look at the underlying uh, information contained within there and get IP addresses, date and times, etc. From that, you can locate a particular internet service provider that has responsibility for that IP address, and then via subpoena, potentially identify the account holder uh, that may have had that IP address at a particular time. But that's not always the case. Sometimes servers that are used for transmission of these emails, whether it's China, Korea, Romania, etc., they don't have a lot of incentive to follow any of our subpoenas, and they just don't give you the information. So you may not be able to get the subscriber information, depending on the particular ISP. Uh, we've certainly seen that as well. A lot of trails have have led to Russia and Romania and those countries, and uh, they just don't care what information might be helpful. It's a problem. Just because you have an electronic document does not mean it's authentic. In fact, we've seen hundreds of cases where documents have, in fact, been altered. I regret to say we've even seen cases where the attorneys involved were the ones who did the alteration of the documents. So can an expert determine the authenticity of an electronic document? Sure. And, and the more information that they have access to and more devices they have access to, the better their success is going to be as to, to making some sort of definitive decision as to whether or not uh, the document is authentic or whether or not it's been altered since it was originally created, which is where we get have a lot of involvement in. But it's the electronic version. That's key uh, of that document. If you have the computer itself that it was created upon, that's even better because now you've got the electronic document, you've got the, the computer, there's a lot of other information that's contained on the computer that can help corroborate whether or not that document really existed or was created on that particular machine. Or if the storage device, let's say it was stored on a flash drive or it was stored on an external USB drive, if you have that actual device, then you can, there's other remnants that reside there to help authenticate whether or not the, uh, the electronic version is, is authentic there. But the, the key to all of this information is having access to as much data and devices as you can and the internal metadata of the document itself, which is going to have such things as the, the author, the, the original creator, or whoever it was the software was registered at the time, 
the creation date, uh, maybe potentially version numbers uh, with, within that document. And we can do a comparison of that to, let's say, a doc another document or, uh, or multiples and try to draw a timeline as to whether or not the, the electronic version is, is really authentic. And it's, it, as I said, the more piece of information you have, the more devices you have where this document may have resided, you can help create the trail and therefore determine whether or not it was you know, fabricated post the original one or whether or not uh, it looks like it's the only one that exists. <laughs> As an attorney, let me just uh, state that there's a, as a practice tip, that there's a wide range of standards for determining authenticity. If you're before Chief Magistrate Judge Paul Grimm, as an example, you better have authenticity nailed down. Uh, but in your typical court, and certainly that's true in our state courts here in Virginia, if you are, are proposing to enter a document and the other side does not object or raise any issues of authenticity, the document is probably going to come in. But you do need to know the court that you're practicing in and the judge here before because the standards do vary somewhat. A decade ago, voicemail was almost never introduced as evidence in court, and boy have those days changed, especially now that we have unified messaging where the voicemail is converted to a sound file and attached to an email, which it means that voicemail is hanging around a lot longer and is in a different location than it was before. So things have really changed here. So can ex experts capture voicemail and how do they do that? Yes, they can. You can get it from potentially the, the cell phone itself. As, as an I mentioned the iPhone before, but even though the, uh, you, you leave your voicemail message with AT&T, when you retrieve that message, it actually converts that into a file and stores it on the phone itself. And certain phone models do that. So you can get it from the device. You can get it from potentially the carrier. Uh, home answering machines as well. Uh, we extract data off of those too. You mentioned uh, unified messaging. That's certainly a, an area that we see a lot of wave files, typically wave files, uh, as sound files attached to email. And so as you're going through the emails, you're, you're looking for any of those kinds of files that, uh, to, to retrieve and, and show that uh, voicemail actually was being used. Can an expert determine everything that a user has done on a computer in a specific time frame? We get this question quite a bit, and it's uh, more, more so in, in business cases what was happening two months before the employee put their resignation in as an example? And the answer is yes, we can determine that. Uh, so we create this timeline, we look at the, a, lot of, uh, a lot of bits of information, certainly the internet history which we've already talked about. We look at the file information, uh, what files were created, accessed, modified, etc. during the particular time periods, even what applications were run. You know, was, was Word run? Was there a, uh, a CD burning package run, etc.? All those remnants remain, so we can take a look at that. From the Internet history, we, t we already talked about the websites they visited, what search terms they used. But when folks usually try to take things away, like I said, in business cases, they usually email them as attachments to their web-based email, so we can make that determination from the, the Internet history. Or they use some sort of external device or flash drive, and we can see that activity as well. So we lay all the stuff out and we, we help the attorney understand what may have happened on that computer during a particular window of time. And, uh, and it's pretty telling. You, you can also tell, you get some sort of personality traits as well from the users when, when you see that, that timeline and kind of what they're interested in and what they do. And sometimes it's not pretty. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think all computer forensics companies are getting more inquiries involving GPS devices and GPS tracking devices and those are particularly proliferating in family law cases 
Uh, I know we had one that was was uh, pretty funny where a guy, not, not all that smart, understood that the GPS tracking device needed a line of sight to the satellite, so he cleverly put it on the roof of the car. Gee, how long do you think it took the wife to discover that? So, <laughs> you know, little, little, little silly. So can experts retrieve the data in a GPS or GPS tracking device? Well, there's really two main types, and, and I'll talk about the, the very common one first, which are the... Um, the GPS, uh, the Garmin's, the TomToms, the Magellan's, those types of things that are, that are more for directional things. And the answer there is yes, you, you may be able to, to get information from that because it's very similar to the cell phones. The same manufacturers that are doing a lot of the cell phone uh, forensic technology are also doing GPS stuff. So Garmin is the most popular device and they are the most supported. So depending on the model, you'll be able to get some of that information off of there. And as time goes on, we're seeing more and more models being supported. And you're going to, the kind of information you're going to get from those devices are things, not necessarily a complete track of where the vehicle drove, how they drove you know, from A to B, but more what destination points were programmed in, because those are saved, what favorite kind of spots might be there, et cetera. That kind of data would, would reside in there. Uh, the last origination and last destination may be held there too, depending on the, on the model of, of device that you're using. But certainly it would be very telling if the, one of the addresses that was put in as a destination was the Paramore's address as an example. So that information can be retrieved. Those are the, the directional, I'll call them, GPS devices. The tracking devices, these are the ones that are typically used by private investigators. They're stuck onto vehicles. Normally uh, they can be real-time in that they use the cellular network and they actually transmit their location at various points or they can just store the data but they actually hold where the vehicle was at any point in time as they were moving. Those kinds of devices tend to be very very proprietary and very specialized so the manufacturers have really customized all of these things. You're probably going to need to get assistance from the manufacturer in order to extract that kind of data because they typically will use custom cables or custom software to communicate with those. However, that doesn't mean that they're totally lost because especially lately, a lot of these kinds of devices, they transmit their data and they, they transmit it, let's say, in the form of text messages to a particular um, cell phone, etc. Or you're able to access via a web browser what the information is. So if you have access to the computer that was used to, let's say, find the, the location of these GPS tracking devices, you'll get that information from the browser history. If it's text messages, you might be able to get that information from the phone as well. So not all is lost, even if it is a, a proprietary uh, device. But you have to check on, on, the, on the state laws, too, because in, in Virginia here, it's illegal to put a, a GPS tracking device on a vehicle that you don't have ownership interest in. So certainly the, the attorneys are really going to need to, to understand whether or not what they can do and what they can't do. Can you tell... Well, let me let me talk about clock manipulation for a moment. It's pretty rare, but it does happen. Someone maybe wants to have an alibi for the time illegal activity took place, so they change the clock, they move it backward, they move it forward in an attempt to provide that alibi. Uh, can an expert tell if the computer clock has been changed? The short answer is yes. There's a lot of different places that the clock manipulation will, will show up. There's not a single file, as an example, that says, hey, the clock was changed. So you, you have to look at a, a lot of different places. But the short answer is, of, of course, you can. You can determine whether or not something, uh, the clock has been modified. You may not be able to see, see what it was changed to, but you will definitely see. 
And the number one question I think all computer forensics firms get is, how much does computer forensics cost? Well, that, that varies. We can talk somewhat in generalities, but computer forensics is, is a science, so it's not always easy to answer that. As an example, when we're asked to forensically image a number of computers and then search for the data and to try to f extract what, what may be potentially relevant, it's, it's fairly easy to, to lock down on the number of computers. We've got a lot of history. We know how long that takes, so that's not the hard part. The hard part is trying to estimate what to do with the amount of data that comes out because we don't know the answer to that until we've actually gone through it and extracted and run searches, et cetera, to, to bring back that volume of data before we can do that. So to, to solve that problem, what a lot of companies do is they, they have a price estimator that we have one and, and we know many of our, our colleagues and friends have one as well, that they, they generally can give you a price range and then often cap the fees off. So do like a not to exceed kind of deal. At, at least pending your written authorization, which is, is fine because depending on what you find, you may want to go further, do something else. But you know you should have the right to be notified and then give authorization before the costs escalate out of control, which is always the number one complaint mm -hmm. about computer forensics and electronic evidence. That, that's certainly true. And, and that kind of defines then the, the project in phases. So maybe the first phase is, okay, here's the cost to, to do the acquisition and preserve all the data. Then the second phase is we'll, we'll run searches or we'll try to go through the data and find out how much volume we've got. And then after that, we'll give you a number as far as what we think is going to be the cost to, to review that information. So yes, certainly you can, you can do it that way. But also something to keep in mind is, is the hourly rates. All too often, I think a lot of folks will say, oh, geez, that's $200 an hour and they're, they're a better company to go with and it's going to be cheaper than a company that's $350 an hour. And that's not necessarily true because we have seen bills where and companies where they'll start the clock 8 o'clock in the morning and let it run throughout the entire day when all the computer doing is cranking through and it's actually doing the work and there's not a human being sitting there watching it, but yet they're billing at $200 an hour. We've seen a, a bill actually from a company where uh, there's an eight-hour bill just for setting up one computer to image it. And at $200 an hour, that's 1600 bucks, which is absolutely crazy. <laughs> You know, it should be nowhere near that. You know, maybe 25% of that at best. So you got to be very careful when you're when you're talking about costs, and, and especially in this arena. Your best source is certainly going to be referrals from friends and colleagues, because they've had experience. They can attest to the quality of the work, the responsiveness, how reasonable were they, uh, etc. Et but a good company as well, they're going to be very transparent. They're going to give you estimates. They're going to give you caps. They'll tell you when you should or shouldn't spend money to go after something. Uh, and most of the times, uh, keep in mind as well that it does, the estimates don't include any deposition or, or trial costs because the vast majority of the cases they settle beforehand. The truth is the truth. Once it comes up, no matter which party it's for, and, and then the attorneys get together and say, okay, where are we going with this thing? Probably about less than 1% of our, our uh, cases end up ever going to trial. And you save money, I would say, in the process. In early case management, early case assessment, that's one of the best ways to, to save money. Bring your expert in early, take a look at what you've got, get some sound advice, and then move forward with a plan, as opposed to reacting and lurching from crisis to crisis in the discovery process, which happens a lot. And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. John, thanks so much for pinch hitting for Jim. My pleasure, and uh, we certainly hope Jim is feeling better. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Feel better, Jim. I miss you, but we'll catch you next time. Happy trails, cowboy.